This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This week, New York author Ruth Ben-Giot is in Honolulu. She's just been named the Daniel and Maggie Inouye Distinguished Chair in Democratic Ideals at the University of Hawaii at Manoa for the spring semester. She's a New York University professor and a contributor for the Washington Post, CNN, and MSNBC. Her book is entitled Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present. It looks at illiberalism, a term you don't hear every day, but it's in the headlines. Illiberal is being used now often as a synonym for authoritarian, but the fact that we don't really know what to call things is a symptom of our changing geopolitical climate. And also, even in the United States, for example, the Republican Party perhaps used to be a conservative party and now is transforming into an autocratic party. And so we are using illiberal, meaning uh, leaders such as Viktor Orban in Hungary, who calls his system illiberal democracy. He's actually a reason that term started being used. And he sees liberal democracy with its ideals of equality and inclusivity as uh, a threat to Western Christian white civilization. So he says, oh, I'm in, I have an illiberal democracy, although there's nothing much democratic about his system. That's how the word is being used today, but it really is, we don't know what to call things anymore. <laughs> Do we call things fascist? Did we call Trump a fascist? Is Orban a fascist? Many say Putin's a fascist. He used to be a communist, so things are in flux. Yeah, I and mean, we have these labels, and sometimes they're just so broadly used, you know, you just worry because, you know, like you said, illiberal Democrat, you know, uh, and, and, and some t sometimes is that It a makes no sense. And exactly. Part of it is designed to confuse you. And so, for example, one of the reasons I wrote my book Strong Men, which goes over a hundred years of authoritarianism, it starts with the fascist, and I chose to focus mostly on right-wing authoritarians because I thought there wasn't a history like this. So start with the fascists, and what happens when fascists die when, in 1945, it goes through right-wing military coups up to today where things work differently. Of course, you still have you know communist states, one-party states, but in many places, authoritarians come to power via elections. This is a big difference with the classic dictatorships. And this is where Viktor Orban says, oh, well, we're still a democracy, we have elections. But the trick is with, it's called electoral autocracy, actually. You keep elections and then you game the system by purging the opposition, by um, capturing the judiciary. So if there's challenges, we saw this with Trump in 2020, if there are challenges to fraud, the judges are already purged and they're loyalists. You, you stack the system with loyalists. And then you domesticate the media, as Orban has done in Hungary, so the opposition candidates' messages don't even reach most of the population. So it's really controlled, tightly yes. controlled. So in the last, uh, Orban was reelected in 2022, and the opposition mounted uh, a six-party coalition, but the, its candidate, Peter Marquise, uh, had not been on national television since 2019. And again, the way they domesticate the media is not old school. They don't just shut it down. You get your allies and cronies to buy out the opposition. You pressure people. You don't hear about people falling out of windows in Hungary like in 
in Russia, but you harass them with lawsuits. You find ways to, to make the media your own. And all this comes together so that when you have elections, you kind of game them and you get the results you need to stay in power. So what do we call that? It's not classic fascism, but it continues many of those things. And so in my book, I go over this 100 years to give people a sense of what is changing and what is staying the same. And what got you onto this? I mean, uh, you know, was it any particular incident or your upbringing? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I grew up in Southern California on the beach in Pacific Palisades. My mother's from Scotland and my father's from the Middle East and so did not talk about Nazis and the Holocaust at home. But Pacific Palisades was a place where many famous anti-Nazis had emigrated to like Thomas Mann and Arnold Schoenberg, and they all came to the Palisades in Santa Monica. So I grew up and I started thinking about what did it mean to have to, have to leave your country and go halfway around the world? And, and maybe the fact that where I, my, I'm first generation and there was, I didn't have any family, they were all halfway around the world too, thinking about distance and having to um, uproot yourself. So that's how I got interested in this dictatorship as a, as a way of understanding something so terrible that hundreds of thousands had to leave in some countries like Chile eventually. 300,000 people had to leave because of the dictatorship. And then I focused on Italy. So I was doing historical work, film propaganda, cultural policy, social policy, racial policy. And then Trump came on the scene, <laughs> 2016. And I saw him with the loyalty oaths, the rallies, the, the, the attacking the press, all the things, the racism. And I thought, uh-oh, this is familiar. And so that's what started me doing public outreach, writing for CNN, covering the campaign, trying to warn Americans that, yes, it can happen here. Well, you know, here in our backyard, you know, we were watching what was going on with the Philippines, you know, with uh, Ferdinand Marcos Sr., uh, Duterte, the whole human rights violations. And just this weekend, I was just struck by a visual that I saw in the news about, uh, is it El Salvador? It, it was it was a snapshot of just prisoners, I think, uh, you know, alleged uh, gang members, and they were just crowded in. Uh, they were moving to a new prison. And my heart just sank because they have no recourse. And if there are innocent people involved in that, they're just caught up in that web. And so, yeah, you you think about what's going on, you know, across the Pacific and, and those regimes. And what, one of the things I do is use my historical training to apply it to the present and think about patterns in history. So the Philippines is interesting because one of the patterns, and we're, gonna, we're seeing it here too in the States, when you have an authoritarian who's very out there, like Duterte, who boasted uh, this, is a, this is a red flag, they run for office nowadays, one of the things they do is boast that they are capable of violence. Bolsonaro did it, Trump did it, remember his comment where he said, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone? Duterte, he said, don't elect me because if you do, it's going to be bloody. Or he boasted about throwing people out of helicopters. He said, I do it again tomorrow. I loved throwing people out of helicopters. So when you have somebody who's just really out there, what can happen is he's effective at placating extremists. They love to kill as many people as possible and be the strong man. 
his virility boast. But some people, including conservative elites who might have backed him at the beginning, they get tired of this. It's too much upheaval. So it can create a demand for a more disciplined extremist, somebody who doesn't say things like, I'm going to throw you out of a helicopter. And I believe that that's part of why there was uh, an appetite built to return the Marcos to power, because he, he represents an institutionalized repression, martial law, dictatorship. But he's not uh, as much of a loose cannon. He doesn't go around boasting about making love to four women at once and killing people. So this is a syndrome that when you get these people in the system, and in the case of the Philippines, you had the Marcos, and then you had the Duterte, and of course, the Duterte's legacy is being carried on by his, his daughter. It's hard to get rid of them, and they can come back as the Marcos has been. Now, the same syndrome we're seeing in our country now, Trump was incredible loose cannon. I mean, who starts their campaign in 2016 by saying they could shoot someone, and they would get away with it, and people would love them? Well, he did, and this was one of the things that led me to start covering him and talking about him, because when he said that, and it was January 2016, I thought, oh, we're, we're doomed if he's not excluded immediately, and instead the GOP invited him into power. We have been talking to author Ruth Ben-Ghion, author of the book Strong Men from Mussolini to the President. We'll hear more about uh, on our conversation, but we're going to have to take a pause right now for a test of the emergency alert system since this is the first of the month. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You are back with the conversation, and we continue with our interview with New York author Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She's in town to talk about her new book, which looks at the patterns of political strongmen, timely as we mark the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. We pick up our conversation about former President Donald Trump coming into power. So there were years of him, loose cannon, and who do we have now, the consensus building around Ron DeSantis 
who is a disciplined extremist, far too smart to talk about shooting people, but equally lethal for our democracy. So this is an example of um, patterns that occur in, around the world that I if you step back, <laughs> you can see um, how public opinion can be led to um, to, to from the from the kind of open violence to the institutionalized violence that makes people feel more comfortable about it. Oh yes, Ron DeSantis, he's a creature of the system. He's the establishment. Well, you know, people may not agree with your assessment on him and 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 may think that he is the the best candidate now over Trump. So yeah, I mean, what what do you say to those folks out there? Yeah, so many people, they feel that, especially compared to the chaos of Trump, who did have a coup attempt in January 6th, a violent insurrection. There's been an uptick of chaos and violence, and they could see him as bringing order. He also has been extremely smart about talking about how he's uh, in favor of freedom and kind of exploiting the idea of uh, the federal government as, you know, coming to get you, to make you wear masks and do this and that. So. You can see that some people who are in the even conservative tradition, because he's a libertarian at heart, that he's got 45 billionaires backing him. He's had that for some time. So I prefer to see it as why do, why do these appetites for certain kinds of illiberal leaders get built? Why, wh at what time in our history are there appetites for people like Ron DeSantis? who's been censoring people right and left in the universities. And this, it's very old, this from dates from Mussolini, the idea of saying that you stand for freedom but while actually censoring people, banning books, and uh, shutting down people who don't feel the same way as you. And so while you're here in Hawaii, what is your hope? I actually think that I was thrilled to have this prestigious appointment. It's part of my mission of public service. and. Especially, it's named the Chair of Democratic Ideals. And that's a very hopeful uh, name. Because, in fact, we've talked about the, the depressing part of things. But we are actually on the cusp, I believe, of the creation of a kind of anti-authoritarian order. Look at the renaissance of protest all over the world. And I've been tracking this, even places like Iran. Right? What's happening in Israel, places where you, you have a scale and composition of protest that you don't normally see. And there are many things happening in the world. Uh, there's a kind of that some of them prompted by COVID and the disruptions of the pandemic that are leading people to turn away from globalization, from neoliberal order and talk about regional and local economies, uh, supply chains that are better served by bolstering the community. So my next book project will be about this anti-authoritarian order um, and the importance of having hope and optimism because authoritarian propaganda is designed to exhaust you with chaos and negativity and of course social media helps that. And we have to believe in each other in compassion. There are models of leadership in the world that one of them, New Zealand Prime Minister, was stepping down, who actually built into her economic metrics actions of compassion and kindness that had a good health and other community outcomes. There are different ways of doing things, is what I'm saying. Right, and, and, and so your focus now on hope. 
Yes, uh, also because um, we've had spectacular examples of authoritarianism being shown to be a scam. Putin's war, for example. Putin uh, thought he was going to be to secure his place in history. And he didn't consult any, he, uh, autocrats get into a kind of a bubble where they've been in power too long. He's now been in power as long as Mussolini. And they don't listen to anybody but flatterers and sycophants. They kill anybody who's a critic. So two days after the invasion of Ukraine, I wrote an op-ed for MSNBC that said, this is going to go badly because it's part of the pattern. Um, and indeed, what has happened, the, the fearsome Russian military has been exposed to the world as ravaged by corruption because Russia is a kleptocracy. All of the arrogant assumptions Putin had about just running over Ukraine and the West being fragile, these, were, these have been proven wrong. Um, so you have that. That's a massive example. Um, not to underestimate what might happen, because if this, the longer this goes on, the, the more dangerous escalation could, could be. But that and then what's happened in China, where you have protests, the biggest protests since 1989, uh, because people didn't want to be dehumanized by COVID lockdowns and that were done in this very draconian way. So there were protests and, and expressions of grief and mourning in public. And I, I wrote an essay and I quoted uh, a woman who said in Shanghai, I finally could say out loud what I've been wanting to say, which in China is difficult. Right, so you're, we're seeing now these people yeah. being pushed to take a stand and say no. Whether you're, yes. you're putting your hand out, you know, at, at the tank on Tiananmen Square. Or cutting yeah. your hair in public in Iran. So things are going on. And a lot of it is youth, but it's not only youth. A lot of these protests are multi-generational. And in our own country, we don't, we don't even talk about the Women's March anymore. It was the largest protest in American history. Now, s uh, surpassed only by Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, up to 25 million people participated in a Black Lives Matter event. That was, again, the largest. And these protests had actually electoral outcomes in the 2018 midterms and then our own midterms now, which brought it, which changed the face of governance, actually, if you include the local level. 93 Muslims were elected. It, there were so many historic firsts in our last midterms. So we really, we are a nation that's split. <laughs> but there's a huge groundswell of progressive um, values that, uh, and generations of lawmakers, and this is going to come to fruition. So that's part of this, why uh, it can seem crazy right now to say this, but there is, I do believe there's this kind of anti-authoritarian worldview and order that is starting to manifest and will develop in the future. And that was author Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She's been selected as the Den and Maggie Inouye Distinguished Chair for Democratic Ideals at the University of Hawaii. She used to speak at two events while in Honolulu. Tonight she joins East-West Center President Susie Vereslam at the Church of the Crossroads. And Thursday there will be a talk at the UH Art Auditorium in Manoa where copies of her book, Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present, will be available.
Support for HPR comes from Bishop Museum's new exhibit, Ola Ka No Eau, Excellence in Hawaiian Artistry, exploring the genealogy of Hawaiian artistry through generational transmission of knowledge. Opening March 11th, bishopmuseum.org. Here in Hawaii, there's a special appreciation for things that are local. And we take that seriously at HPR, where 30% of the programs you hear are made in-house by our own team. Everything from morning cafe to the conversation, bridging the gap to evening jazz. Whether you're a news junkie or a music lover, HPR's local programming keeps you rooted in our shared island community. Learn more about our shows at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. The National Weather Service issued a wind advisory this past weekend, and it's stubbornly still sticking around. The strongest gusts are expected on Hawaii Island today, and on Oahu, those communities downslope of the Ko'olaus can expect problems. This morning, we talked to meteorologist Derek Rowe about the extended spate of wild winds that we've been seeing. These winds have been relentless. We had issued a wind advisory on Sunday afternoon, and we've been sitting here for the better part of the last three and a half days under these winds. It's not going to stop. It'll be windy tomorrow and finally see a downturn in the winds Friday. And and really what's going on is that it's just just a pattern. People that are following the weather patterns in the mainland, they've had some unusual weather there too. So you tend to get a jet stream that is set up for things like this to happen. You get areas that get cold, you get warm, or in this case, we get locked into strong trade winds here in Hawaii. For the folks living on the continent, they always talk about the Pineapple Express and that that we're sending, you know, weird weather their way. (laughs) But these winds, you know, are 50 mile an hour gusts on the Big Island, I think they're predicting today. Oh, on the Big Island, we were seeing winds of around 60 miles per hour. 60? Yes, I think the, the strongest wind gusts, we did see one at 70 yesterday and a couple over 60. I think for for the time being, we'd expect to see the winds not really getting much more than around 60 miles per hour. And that would be mainly in the Kohala area on the Big Island. Well, here on Oahu, you know, we're seeing crazy video online about traffic poles going down in the main urban core. And, you know, I understand that uh, a lot of the communities downslip of the Kotlaus could stand to be affected. That's right. That's typical of these type of winds. They generally bring down some tree branches, are capable of bringing down some power lines and the occasional pole. And you're right in that the communities near mountains or just on the to the west side of the mountains are generally more susceptible to these kind of strong wind gusts. And that's just due to the mechanics of the, of the wind going over an obstacle-like terrain. You tend to get eddying and strong wind gusts that occur just, just over and on the lee side of the islands. You know, because this isn't like a storm and everybody hunkers down, you know, people are still going to work, to school, and, and some of the poles that are coming down are just kind of random. So it, it's a little dicey to be out on the road in some areas. Yeah, I mean, even people with higher profile vehicles, when you get a big wind gust, you can feel it, or especially in trucks. So it's fairly widespread, and it's going to continue probably into tomorrow. Anything else on the other islands that we should be warned about? Generally speaking, around 30 miles per hour gusting to around 50 is what we've seen and what we should continue to see through tomorrow. Friday, you'll get a little bit of a drop in the winds, especially during the weekend. They're going to drop off. And then if you're no fan of trade winds, then you're going to like the weather for next week because we're expecting a front to come on down. So we have Kona winds ahead of that front for early next week. And rain? 
it's a little unstable out there. There's a disturbance in the upper portion of the atmosphere, and that's creating these heavy showers that move through from time to time. You know, a lot of times we just expect to see the showers confined to the windward slopes, but with these strong trades, they're just, just carrying right across the islands from Maui to Kauai. And also we see a few thunderstorms out there too, mainly on the Big Island and Maui, but it's not out of the question. You could see it somewhere else, but it would be quick moving and brief. Okay. And snow on the Big Island, on the mountains? With this disturbance, actually, the snow level is quite low. There is a small possibility that you could see, even see some ice on the top of Haleakala during the next 24 hours. Probably nothing that would accumulate. You wouldn't see much in the way of snow. Snow would be unlikely, but there could be a little bit of ice up there. So the snow level is fairly low, down to about 10,000 feet. And that was meteorologist Derek Rowe talking, uh, cautioning us about the wind advisory. And heads up, the long-term forecast from the National Weather Service is for a wet spring. Got solar? Are you an Alice household? That's asset limited income constraint and employed. Well, there are efforts at the legislature to give you a helping hand. HPR reporter Savannah Harriman Pote joins us in studio. Good morning. Good morning, and hope everyone is staying dry and staying in one place. (laughs) (laughs) Not blowing around. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, That bill you referenced is House Bill 949, and it would create a new loan program to expand opportunities for low-income households to install solar panels or to access financing in order to install solar and storage. And as you said, this is specifically targeting ALICE households. That acronym, as you said, stands for those who are asset-limited, income-constrained, and employed. And those households often don't earn enough to cover the basic costs of housing, childcare, food, transportation, healthcare, phone plans, taxes, everything that sort of stats on top of itself. And so their in- limited income can put things like solar panels out of reach. Especially when you consider the significant upfront costs of installing a solar panel. Here in Hawaii, a typical 6,000 watt solar panel system is just over $11,000, and that's after available federal tax credits are applied. So this is what the program is trying to do, trying to help a big portion of our population. 44% of folks were identified as falling under the ALICE threshold as of 2022 contend with rising energy costs. Solar panels can help kind of mitigate the fluctuations we've seen in oil prices. Um, Energy costs have been rising due to those prices Last year, in March of 2022, an Oahu resident who was using 500 kilowatts of energy on average paid about $185 for their monthly bill. This month, because of the recovery factor or the change in energy costs due to oil prices, folks are expected to pay about $215. So if you have a solar system set up, that can really take the edge off. So this bill is uh, advancing through the House? Yes. So this bill has advanced through the House. Um, It has been heard by all three committees and will now go to a floor vote. And if it's successful there, then it will cross over to the Senate side. There were some questions about this bill, though, even though it was passed unanimously out of the Finance Committee this week. And that largely had to do with its similarity to another program that was established by the House 10 years ago. And that's the Green Energy Market Securitization Fund or bond, um, and that is the GEMS program, which was also supposed to target or expand access to low-income households in the solar market. Um, Gwen Yamamoto Lau is the executive director of the Hawaii Green 
Infrastructure Authority. They oversee and administer the GEMS program, which is still in existence. And she said they have $20 million of the allotted $150 million left in the GEMS fund. We're running out of those funds, and that's why we need additional funds. And also, as mentioned, our current GEMS financing um, solar fund doesn't allow us to do batteries. This would allow us to do solar plus batteries, which is very important, not only for resiliency, but to lower our energy costs. And also with new um, rate rates, um, schedules coming out, it's going to be even more important. So there were some concerns for lawmakers just based on GEM's track record. There were concerns when it and difficulties when it was originally established of spending that $150 million principal. Um, concerns about who had access to those funds. Houses that were held in trusts were not applicable. The interest rates were high, which was discouraging for the target audience of low-income households. And then there were other small administrative things, like if you were writing a check in order to pay for your monthly payment, you were charged an additional $15. So that may, meant it took a while for GEMS to get off the ground, though, as um, the executive director stated, they are winding down that fund. They have been successful in dis disbursing those funds, and they're identifying new aspects of the solar market that low-income households could benefit from, and one of those really is storage. Do they, do they know how many people they could help with this? So there is an exact estimate about how many people could qualify for the fund beyond the Alice um, identification. So for the purposes of the bill, they are saying that folks who make a, up to 140% of the median income of their area would qualify for this loan program. So the Hawaii County median income for a household is $68,000. So if your household made $95,000 or less, this program would be applicable to you. We also don't know yet how much would be invested into this loan program. Um, the bill originally had $200 million set aside. The, the committees have now rolled that back and they're letting the bill proceed through its votes to get a fuller picture of what the appropriate funds would be for a program of this kind. Okay. All right. So we'll see uh, uh, where it goes and, and who it can help. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking with HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote. Uh, to read more on the story, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. What to do about fireworks, the out-of-control illegals, and the lack of prosecution. It's a conundrum, and it's the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor John Hill joins us today. Good morning, John. Hi, Catherine. So, gosh, your story, uh, you know, it hits home with a lot of people because uh, a lot of uh, folks are just at their wit's end when we see these crazy display of illegal fireworks on, on the first of the year. Yeah, I, I imagine it makes them even crazier to know that the police do hand out citations, but most of these citations, 94% of them, never get prosecuted. They are, for really unknown reasons, dropped, and, uh, and people go scot-free. And you did a deep dive, you know, thumbing through all the citations that were uh, issued. 
I did. Yes, there were uh, 263, I think, over the past five years. And um, I found the addresses and something, some information about the perps, uh, where they lived, or the alleged perps, I should say, okay. um, where they lived, how old they were, their gender, that sort of thing. And your one case uh, at the top of your story highlights a particular gentleman who was cited uh, or, or at least uh, reported to the police many times, but nothing ever came of those cases. Yeah, that was uh, Alan Badawa. Yes, um, I, I came across his name in the data I had three times he was cited, and in all of those cases, the, the, the charges were dismissed. In addition to that, there was a, um, an article that was written about him around New Year's Eve a couple of years ago saying that the police had confiscated a few hundred pounds of fireworks from his home. And actually, there wasn't even a citation on that case that I could find. I mean, that's so just, I'm not sure what happened to that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just stunning. I mean, it, it, you know, this was, a like I guess, a repeat offender, right? And you had folks that uh, uh, I think even got video. Yeah, I, I I don't recall that there was video in that case. I know that the the neighbors had witnessed him uh, riding around on a moped, setting off bottle rockets, and had called police um, on a couple of occasions. So yeah, the the neighbors wanted something done about this particular individual, and and in fact he was cited, but the citations were dismissed. And so, what did the prosecutor's office say about about that? Well, the prosecutor's office told me that these cases are hard to do, uh, and the reason is because you have to have somebody witnessing the the person setting off the fireworks, and then they have to be willing to come into court and testify against someone who might very well be a neighbor or a friend or you know even a family member. But the the, the reason that didn't completely add up was because most of the citations I looked at involved police officers who were on patrol, usually on New Year's Eve, and who saw with their own eyes somebody setting off fireworks and wrote the citation because they saw it and they confiscated evidence in many cases. So it's unclear to me why those cases could not be prosecuted. And you did have a a woman who I think took video, right, Um, of, of someone, of a neighbor that was setting it off. That's right. Yes, uh, that was on uh, on on the west side. Uh, she had video of her neighbors. It was apparently I didn't see the video, but apparently the fireworks were clearly coming from this property of her neighbors, and uh, she said the police officer wasn't e- e- even interested in seeing it. Yeah. So, the, but that that gets to the bottom of people's frustration. You know, they don't understand why uh, things aren't happening. Uh, but uh, yeah, interesting story. Uh, thanks for the deep dive. Thanks, Catherine. All right. We have been talking to editor John Hill for today's Reality Check to read his story on this issue of illegal fireworks and why they aren't prosecuted. Visit org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and we now go to this week's Manu Minute. Thanks to Zeno Kanto, we've got the calls of a desert Game bird. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the chestnut-bellied sand grouse. Chestnut-bellied sand grouse are one of our many game birds that were introduced to Hawaii for hunting. Perhaps because they're native to the deserts of southern Sahara and India, 
they're able to do well and can only be found in the driest parts of Kohala on the Big Island. In addition to their chestnut-colored bellies, males and females are mostly mottled brown with a distinctive black necklace across their breast and a wingspan of about two feet. With their small heads and long pointed wings, they really stick out from any other game birds you might see in the area. Chestnut-bellied sand grouse eat mostly grass and weed seeds, and if you're lucky, you might see or even hear them overhead as they fly in small flocks between their foraging and roosting grounds. One really interesting characteristic of sand grouse is that the males have specially adapted feathers on their breast that allows them to soak up water like a sponge from far-off ponds and puddles and then carry it back to their thirsty nestlings. These little birds can then drink up to four teaspoons of water just by squeezing their dad's feathers with their bill. No other birds can do this, which is perhaps why chestnut-bellied sand grouse are so successful in the driest part of Hawaii. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff.
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering virtual classes including art, film, history, and gardening with start dates through March 20th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Vasilisa Stepanenko was a journalist living in eastern Ukraine when Russian troops stormed her neighborhood. I never can imagine that they will destroy my school, my neighborhood, my house, and all my past. She and a small team are determined to show the world this war. It is the most important moment in our life. On the next reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following by Mark's Cafe. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. We have an incredible opportunity to work with Hawaii music artist Kimie Minor to tell you about the Nahoku Hanohano Award winner created a free music mentorship called Naleo, which is Hawaiian for the voices. Young musicians across the state will get a chance to learn about songwriting as well as the business side of the industry. The program will also address mental health to prepare students for an industry that's seen its share of artists struggling with fame and failure. The conversations Russell Subiano talked with a minor about why she thinks there's a need for mentorship. Can you talk about some of your mentors and how they had an impact on you? Yeah, I think, well, both of my parents loved music growing up, and so I watched them fall in love with music every day, and my dad had his nylon string guitar, which he later gave to me when I went off to Kamehameha schools. So I would say my parents first kind of put that love of music in me, and then when I was in fourth grade, I started playing ukulele in school, and my teacher, Miss Juan, from my ukulele class in sixth and seventh grade, really encouraged me to take solos and to sing <laughs> and to kind of like step out of my comfort zone. Then when I went off to high school and I graduated, I actually met Barrington Levy, who was a reggae singer in San Diego, and he took me on his West Coast tour, and he mentored me on touring and the life of a musician, a touring musician and also helped me get rid of my stage fright because the Jamaican island kind of mentality is different than the Hawaiian island mentality where we are taught ha'a ha'a and humbleness and those things there everyone's a star and they like to shine and they'll be singing on the streets and so I spent time in Jamaica I lived there for a while and learned a lot about that confidence and for sure I would say Fiji I always remember what he told me when I was 19 years old, and he told me the music industry has nothing to do with music and everything to do with rights. Because I was so focused on the music, I wasn't paying attention to the rights behind the music. So he really helped to guide me on making sure to protect my rights, and actually I carry that with me still to this day. There's many sides to being a musician, and I think a lot of times the business aspect of it kind of gets overlooked or remains a mystery for up-and-coming musicians. In this mentorship program that you are getting ready to launch, is the business aspect of being a musician, is that part of the mentorship as well? 
absolutely because the point of this program is to find their voice but then what do they do when they find it and for us we really want to focus on the rights part of it and just setting them up properly for success being able to catalog and keep track of their things and who owns what percentages just having simple things like song split sheets and actual tools that they can use and when we think about the need for mentorship programs when you think about when you saw a need to create a mentorship program when you look around at our culture today why do you think mentorship has become so important why do you think there's a need for it i always kind of relate it to the hawaiian value makahana kaike we learn by doing and storytelling so when we mentor we're guides i really believe that we're like guides and so we've been through this and we can share our stories and then we apply that in actual work you know like interning and mentoring these students in practical ways as they're doing it as they're learning it as they're trying to write songs and working together performing those things and we're their guide do you think it's a good thing for our youth today to have somebody that they can look to that they can learn from 100 percent you know and that's been my guiding star throughout my career there weren't a lot of opportunities for me and I created this program because it's a program I wish I had when I was younger and I was mentored along the years and I'm still being mentored till today I always have people in my life that mentor me and I think it's the only way that we can continue to grow one thing that stands out about your mentorship program is that it's focused on artistic health and and that it makes a concerted effort to address mental health. Why was it important to you to make sure that you addressed not just the musical growth of the artist, but also the mental health? I think because music is therapy, it's scientifically proven. And so if they understand what they hold, then they can use it to their advantage. And sometimes we just need the words. We just need to find the words in order to call it by name, and then we can recognize it and use it as a way to heal ourselves. And you know, since the pandemic, stress and depression has gone up 300% in youth, 300%. They've said that they've dealt with stress and depression, and that is frightening. And so if we can use music as an outlet, which we do already, but as creators, if they can understand that power that they have right within them, then that's what we want to encourage and empower them to use, use their music as a way to get through it. You say in your press release for your mentorship program that the need for it is in direct response to the isolating struggles that Hawaii's artists have experienced as a marginalized demographic. Yes. When you say isolation, are you talking about our recent experience during the pandemic or are there other isolating struggles that Hawaii artists have to overcome? Definitely, and this has been a long time challenge, being isolated from the mainland, the mainstream media in the music industry. So feeling isolated with space was already a challenge that we've faced forever, you know, for a long time as music creators, as business owners in the music industry. Um, And then adding on the pandemic where we were physically also with each other, emotionally isolated, it just made us go even more inward and 
it was really difficult. Honestly, it was difficult for everybody, everybody. But a lot of people used music as a way to heal themselves, to feel connected, you know, with all the TikTok videos and the dance yeah. routines. And that was a way for us to connect. And out of the pandemic now, we find the power in music and we want to amplify the sounds and the stories of Hawaii to the world. And so we want to encourage, you know, these youth to tell their story through music as therapy. And now we have a lot more channels, a lot mm -hmm. of ways that we can do that over the Internet now. And so now you have this experience, you have this measure of success, and now you take your experience and you are funneling it into this opportunity to be able to teach more artists and, and guide them as well. Can you talk about how Naleo works and what you hope your students will benefit from the mentorship program? Yeah, so Naleo is the voices, and I believe in the power of everyone's voice. That's my, my mission is to empower every voice and to help them to represent their stories. So we start there, and to me, the core of any good artist or anything is a good song. That's the key to music. So we want to start with that basic concept of this is how you write a song. So we help them to find their voice through writing with each other. And the best part about it is that they, they become a cohort and they work together and they find confidence and strength within each other. And that's really empowering for them because they, are, they can relate to each other and they can co-write these songs and they're learning how to collaborate, which is what we want in this industry, you know, more collaboration in the music industry. Mm -hmm. And then we touch on our storytelling. We tell our stories of the trials and tribulations, the challenges that we faced. And I think for all of us artist mentors, we have Anuhea, Paula Funga, you know, some of the best in the industry, especially as females, we want to share our stories with them and the challenges. And hopefully now that we've found the right path, leave that door open for them so that it's, you know, they can get there without having to go all the way around like we did. For me, it's not about a one off thing. I want there to be multiple touch points. So we continue working with them throughout their careers and we are always an available resource for them. Kimi, thank you so much for coming into the station. Yes, thank you so much. And I definitely want to thank the Hawaii's Creative Industry Division, DBED, for supporting this with their creative labs. It's just really encouraging to know that the state is behind us as creatives and that they are investing in us. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, again for coming in. Yeah, thank you so much. And that was award-winning musician Kimi A. Minor talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. A Minor's free music mentorship program called Naleo is for ages uh, 14 through 22. The program starts this Saturday on Oahu, so you're going to hurry up and sign up soon. Uh, it will also be on Hawaii Island in April, Maui in September, and Kauai in November. We'll have a link to the registration form on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear from lifeguard Luke Shepardson about his win at the Eddy. We'll get an update on the state of ocean safety. 
Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Or you can email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you've heard? Find our archive shows online. Uh, search for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.